There's a famous tale told by the Roman poet Ovid. Echo, a nymph, falls in love with a youth named Narcissus. Now, he was born an exceptionally beautiful boy, but his mother was concerned about his welfare, and so she consulted with a prophet regarding the future of her son. And the prophet, for what it was worth, told his mother that Narcissus would live to a ripe old age if he didn't come to know himself. Now, when he had reached the age of 16, every youth in the town admired him and wanted to be like him, and every girl in that town would have been in love with him, but he haughtily spurned every single advance. One day, Narcissus is out hunting stags, and Echom stealthily followed that handsome youth through the woods, and she longed to address him, but found herself unable to speak first. When Narcissus finally heard her footsteps, he shouted, Who's there? Echo answered, Who's there? And so it went on until Echo finally showed herself and she ran to embrace this handsome youth. He pulled away from that nymph, told her to leave him alone, and he left Echo heartbroken. And we're told she spent the rest of her life in lonely glens, pining away for the love that never she knew, only until the point when nothing but her voice remained. Nemesis in the story had heard the cry of Echo and sent Narcissus his punishment. And the punishment was this. He came across a deep pool in the forest, took a drink from the pool, and as he stooped down to drink, he saw a reflection of himself in that pool, and he fell in love with the beautiful boy that he was looking at, not realizing initially that it was himself. Eventually, he realized that image that he had seen in the pool was himself, and knowing that we can't take this anywhere, he tore at his clothes, beat at his body, life force draining out of him, and his soul was ultimately sent to the darkest pit. Then the Narcissus flower grew where he died. Never mind the waters of the river that he looked into, the river Styx. This image of Narcissus has traveled far and wide down through the centuries of time. And it regularly pops up in the works of a whole variety of artists and songwriters and poets as well. For example, painters, Caravaggio, Poussin, Turner, Salvador Dali, John William Waterhouse, all portrayed Narcissus on their canvases. Writers, and particularly poets as well, from the Russian Dostovsky to our own Seamus Heaney, they use these lonely Narcissus-style characters in the writings. In fact, in Heaney's poem, Personal Helicon, he writes, to stare big-eyed Narcissus into some spring is beneath all adult dignity. Paul Coelho, his alchemist, starts that book with a reference to Narcissus. And then in the realm of song, we have writers there that are borrowing heavily from the legend. Bob Dylan's song, License to Kill. Now he worships at an altar of a stagnant pool, and when he sees his reflection, he's fulfilled. 
Another song by Headley was released, and again, it's very relevant to these modern times. In fact, this whole Narcissus concept is so relevant, even prevalent, in the day in which we live. There was a couple of research psychologists, Jean Twenge, Keith Campbell, and they authored a book, The Narcissism Epidemic. Why there are so many narcissists now. And they make the claim that all of these features of personality, they have become so pervasive in Western culture that we're being threatened here that we'll turn a whole generation of people into egomaniacs just thinking about themselves, promoting themselves, as if nobody else in the universe existed, only them. Twenge and her team at San Diego State University, they report in this new study that narcissism continues to spread, and it's spreading quickly among college students, in particular young women. And they're looking to all the cultural changes the influences on females in particular. And they're saying, you know, this isn't surprising. Plastic surgery rates have been jumping. Materialism is all about. We have got, and I'm putting it in, they didn't mention it, transgenderism and all of the I and the me philosophy that pervades that idea. Not to mention the fact that we're being constantly fed a whole diet by talk show and pop psychology that here's what you really need to do. You need to love yourself. So this narcissism, this excessive self-love, it's marked by bloated confidence and by vanity and materialism and a lack of consideration for others. And that means when I come to Holy Scripture, surely I'm going to find somewhere a pointer that will go right into this generation and age and philosophy and will predict the kind of world we live in today. And when I turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the verse 1 through to the verse 5, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says this, Know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for man shall be, and he gives a whole list, but the very first thing he mentions, men shall be lovers of their own selves. Then he goes on to say, covetous, boasters, pride, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, because all of those other things grew out of that first cardinal sin here, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those who are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And so right At one fell swoop there, we discover the Bible is so incredibly up-to-date, so relevant. This is the age in which we live. And what it does is it brings into sharp focus what we are considering in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when Paul is describing for us 
what genuine, sacrificial, selfless love is all about. And it's steering us right away from this whole narcissism. We've been looking at the 15 features that Paul puts into the profile of love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7. Up until this point, we haven't got beyond verse 4, though we plan to touch the tail end of it and move into verse 5 here today. But 1 Corinthians 13 and 4, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. And we said, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love is not proud. But the fifth feature on the face of love is this. Love is not conceited. And that tint takes in the expression, it is not puffed up. It is not conceited. You see, to be conceited drops much lower than merely the mouth. People may be given to hot air and they might shoot off their tongue. And you might say those are the words and expressions of conceit. But conceit drops deeper, much deeper than that. When Paul told the members of the church in Corinth here that love is not puffed up, he was really telling them that you people don't really have real love. In their own estimation, they were spiritual kings. They had arrived. They knew all the answers. They gloried in their gifts. There's not a collection of people like us. There's not a church as gifted as we are. And they were glorying in those gifts. What made them puffed up? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us scratching our heads because it tells us exactly what they were glorying in. They were glorying, for example, in past teaching. In 1 Corinthians 4, the verse 18, Paul says, Now some are puffed up, as though I would not come to you. What were they thinking there? They were thinking, why would Paul even bother coming here? We have it all. We don't need him. We know everything already there is to know. There's nothing. Paul coming to visit us again? There's nothing he can tell us we don't already know. We've enjoyed the ministry, the best ministry in our church. Yes, we've had Paul, but we've moved on. We've had Apollos. We had Cephas as well. What more do we need? There's no way that Paul is going to make another appearance here. and We don't need him. We have all the past teaching we want. And they were puffed up about that. They were puffed up also about their spiritual status. In 1 Corinthians 4, the verse 6 to 10, the fact is highlighted here. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of man above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. And so you can see them there, and all like a bunch of pouter pigeons clustered in the church. And those feathers are going out, and they're expressing themselves, and one's climbing over the top of another one to get to the peak of the pile. Paul's telling them, you should submit yourselves to biblical evaluation, and that'll get you off the puffer track right away. 
In spite of the facts they really had nothing to boast about, in spite of the fact that anything they ever had was received as a gift from God, in spite of the fact it was the Lord who had made them different from the world around them, for He had saved them out of the slime pits of sin and of shame, in spite of the fact God's grace had done everything, they were thinking too highly of themselves. And what Paul does is he launches broadsides against them, In 1 Corinthians 4 and 7, he's unsparing. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? And he follows that broadside up in verse 7 with another one in verse 8. And it's dripping with sarcasm. Now ye are fool. Now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign, that we might also reign with you. You think you're on the throne, if only you were. And then, if that was searing and sarcastic, Paul turns the dial further. In verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ." We are weak, ah, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. They felt their spiritual status was spot on. Paul is underlining how far removed they were from being what they should be. Do you know what they also boasted about? In the midst of gross carnality, they boasted about their immoral activity. Yes, they did. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, Paul says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And their attitude here is, they were boasting about this. Verse 2 makes that plain when it says, And ye are puffed up, conceited even about, immoral act. Not only that, their biblical knowledge. What a mixture. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And so here's a church, and it's puffed up about its distinguished teachers and its spiritual status and its immoral activity. Can you believe it? Its biblical knowledge. They were completely conceited about the spiritual gifts they had, and they were using these gifts to push down and dominate other people. Now, if you're coping with one or two people like this, that have taken on this mixture, you're coping with quite a significant problem. But if you've a congregation full of this kind of people, imbued with his attitude, it's a real disaster. The story is told about two great Italian symphony conductors, Toscanini, Mascani, Muscagni, He was a proud, egotistical, unbelievably terrible character. And as a gauge of how highly he thought about himself, 
He wrote an opera. He dedicated it to himself. The opera was entitled The Masks. And these were the words Muscogny used in order to dedicate it to myself with distinguished esteem and unalterable satisfaction. Now, Muscagney resented Toscanini because Toscanini was a much more popular person than he was. And on one occasion, there was a committee and they were in charge of organizing a music festival in Milan. That was in honor of the composer Verdi. And they inquired as to whether Toscanini and Muscagney would lead the orchestration on that night. Now, Muscagney was so jealous of Toscanini that he made no attempt to hide it and he said, I will conduct on one condition, that I am paid more money than Toscanini. So the management committee agreed with that, and at the close of the festival, they handed over him to Muscagny his fee, one lira. Toscanini had done his work that night without payment. So Muscagny came out of it like a fool. Love, true love is not puffed up. Conceit says, I'm better than you. Love says the opposite. Conceit says, I want everybody to know all about me. Whereas love says, I wish I could know all about you. William Carey was one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived. One of the most proficient linguists this world has ever known. He translated various parts of the Bible into no less than 34 different Indian languages. But he began rather inconspicuously in Leicestershire as a cobbler, fixing shoes. When Kerry arrived in India as a missionary, he was immediately treated with dislike and contempt even because there was an inflexible caste system there that people had been locked into it for centuries. And there was one occasion where they had a dinner party and Kerry was attending the dinner party and a snob, no other way to describe them, decided, I'm going to humiliate William Kerry. I know this guy's from a very humble background. How dare he come over trying to spread some kind of knowledge to us that we don't need? And he said, I hear, Mr. Kerim, that you once worked as a shoemaker. Oh, no, your lordship, William Kerry replied. Not a shoemaker, only a shoe repairman. Kerry wouldn't even claim that he made shoes when he'd only fixed them. Before our Lord Jesus Christ commenced his public ministry, John the Baptist was being healed by many as a hero. They were coming, meeting him in the wilderness of Judea, crowds going out to listen to his preaching flocking to hear what he had to say, but on one occasion, when his followers are questioning him about Jesus, John the Baptist revealed what was in his heart. John chapter 3 and verse 13, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
In other words, what John the Baptist was telling that crowd that day was, the sooner you allow me to slip into the shadow, disappear into the shade, and forget about me, the happier I will be. That's humility. That's a classic, almost unique expression of a heart where pride has not taken up residence, but it's being battered down and thrown out. He realized, as we are taught repeatedly in the Old Testament Scriptures, principally in the book of Proverbs, that God hates pride and arrogance, Proverbs 8 and 13, that shame always follows, hot on the heels of pride, Proverbs 11 and 2, that pride invariably stirs up contention, Proverbs 13 and 10, that pride leads always to a fall and destruction, Proverbs 16, 18, 29, 23. So he knew all of that. Love, Paul says, is not puffed up. John MacArthur put it, love is not big-headed. Love is big-hearted. And may the Lord give us the big hearts we need, that His love might flow through us. So love, it is not conceited. Then another feature, it is not graceless, does not behave without grace. 1 Corinthians 13, the verse 5 now, doth not behave itself unseemly, speaketh not her own. And so we are into another of those in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13. We're into another of those practical, when the rubber really hits the road, kind of features about true love. We have a verb here, of course, and the verb used here means to behave in an unbecoming manner. It's speaking of poor manners. It's flagging up the problem of rudeness doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. Very interesting here, because rude people seem to think they can operate on a stamped passport and go everywhere and say everything, and it doesn't matter what they say or to whom they say it. They're happy to be plain rude. But this rudeness, is it tied up with agape, the word that expresses divine love? Well, it is here because anyone with poor manners acting in a rude fashion is really saying, I don't love you, you know, because I couldn't care less. What annoys you? What insults you? I'll do what I want to do. I'll say what I want to say, whether you like it or not. But Paul is teaching here, love doth not behave itself unseemly. It is not rude. The literal meaning of the word that he uses here is to be shapeless or unformed. Shapeless or unformed doth not behave itself unseemly. What those words are flagging up, shapeless, unformed, is a lack of discipline in the life. Somebody who doesn't discipline, tie in, curtail, their behavior, their speech, their activity with others in mind. Instead, he's simply rude, and he's out of place, and he's overbearing, and he's totally self-centered. Rick Archer. I don't quote guys that own dance classes, but on this one I am from Houston, Texas. Put a page on the internet, and he was frustrated by what he was saying. 
And he delivered four illustrations of rudeness. I'm mentioning only one, which was number four for him, and that was turning off, as he put it, cell phones or mobile phones. And he's saying, as I'm in the class, I'm noticing that cell phones keep ringing, even though it should be well known they aren't allowed in class time. Worse, people have taken to answering them during the class. I know we can all forget I have been guilty myself, but we come into the house of God. Somebody's phone goes off. You're thinking, that's part of your preparation nowadays for entering God's house. Make sure it's off. Don't be embarrassing yourself, annoying someone else. And he said, I suppose my raw nerve in this got exposed in a class the other night when the phone rang while the instructor was calling a pattern and a guy broke free from his partner, started talking in the phone right there. We were in room five, and the front door was about 20 feet away. I thought, surely he's going to go outside. But no, we talked for about 20 seconds, then hung up and dashed back to his partner. Then it rang two more times. Both times he answered it. The last time he wound up walking in circles in the corner by himself as he talked. And then he just says, people. But how did this rudeness manifest itself on the floor of the Corinthian church? It appeared during the love feast, when they had brought in materials for people who had none. But they were going at it like pigs at a trough, overindulging in the love feast. The Lord's table, the rudeness came there as well. It became so out of order. They became drunk. The woman in the church had broken through the boundaries of female propriety before God removed the veil, usurped the role of man within the church. We have tongue speakers, another place where it was rude, and everybody is shouting out, and one fellow's off here, and another one's off there, and somebody else down the center, and they're all meant to be speaking in tongues here, and they're all looking for the, lo- the lead rule. Love was absent, because love is never rude, because love is always lost in how it affects how others feel. Now, we have said more than once in this series that the portrait of love that we have here in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 is actually a portrait of Christ. It's a wonderful representation of who He is and what He has done. And we read Luke 7 here today at our Bible reading this morning because we have there in Luke 7 a tremendous example of our Lord and He's encountering rudeness and overcoming it and answering it by his love. And he's eating at the house of a Pharisee. A woman of ill repute comes in, alabaster box in her hand, extremely expensive ointment. She washes the Savior's feet with her tears, dries those feet with her hair, anoints his feet with the ointment. And the owner of the house, Simon the Pharisee, is tutting in the background. And he makes a snap judgment about the Savior. And he's saying, well, if he's the prophet that he claims to be, he would have known way before now the kind of person that this woman is. She's a sinner. But our Lord knows everything. And he tells a parable about a creditor and two debtors, one of which owed the creditor a huge amount. And then he completed the lesson against rudeness and for love by saying, 
He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which were many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he's saying, backing Simon the Pharisee into the corner and saying, Your love is so defective, and it's been shown up, but you haven't seen it. You haven't realized it. It's been shown up by the actions of this woman. And so he provides a shield for the woman from the Pharisees' arrogance and rudeness and judgment. And he loves her, he forgives her, and he redeems her. Love is gracious, not rude. Plus, it's not simply a matter of not being rude to a fellow believer. Love is not rude to an unbeliever. I've known some Christians who were downright rude and condescending to sinners. And you would think, that child of God thinks he's on such an incredibly high platform that he's just looking down through his nose at people. And maybe that sinner has some bad habit. Or maybe they played loud music. Or done something just on the same scale of innocence. But the Christian has come out and blared and sounded off and have been so rude, they have completely ruined their opportunity to communicate anything about Jesus Christ to that person. It's very possible to get to the place where we imagine we understand every doctrine there is. We know every Bible book there is, where they are in order, can turn to every reference. We think we have all the answers. We become theological robots who have neither grace nor charm nor tact with people who are not on the level that we imagine we have reached. That's a terrible place to be at. And we can close everybody out who is not like us and effectively say, us four, no more, shut the door. Rudeness. And Christianity has often paid the price for its rudeness to unconverted people. Therefore, the great necessity of love, love can save us from sneering through envy at what others have, swaggering along with pride due to what we think we have. And from that inner tendency, to be so full of our own importance that we behave rudely or without grace to others. We have another, and we close with this today, the final feature we're looking today. Love is not conceited. Love is not graceless. Nor is love selfish. It is not selfish. 1 Corinthians 13 and 5, again, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. Seeketh not her own. We're back to Narcissus here. Love is not immersed 
in its own affairs. One of the great Bible commentators, Lenski, he summed the situation up here whenever he said, cure selfishness. Cure selfishness. And you plant a garden of Eden. Paul points us to the obvious. We cannot love somebody else if all we do care about is ourselves. But sadly, don't we live in this me-first society? You see it everywhere. We have, one preacher said, been taught the lesson over and over again. More for me is better for me. This me-first mindset has led our society to the verge of internal collapse, escapism, perversion, unwanted pregnancies, violence, political scandal, family breakups, all symptoms of our modern-day madness, our obsession with me. That's like the biggest ball in the bowling alley. Thrown with vigor, taking out all the pins. Get out of my way. It's all about me. And you can understand why people think that way, because they're being bombarded. We have complete industries that are built around developing this kind of a message. In advertising, we're always told to discover the real you or indulge yourselves because you deserve it. See the advertising messages all so much around this kind of thing. Credit card companies, banks as well, and they're telling us you can make a fortune by getting people to buy now and pay forever and ever. Publishing houses, cranking out book after book that contains the assert yourself message. And increasingly, we see it daily living. Not so much people don't care about others, they don't even see them. Every day, they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. Lord, give us sight. Help us to see people. Help us to understand, instead of being consumed by me, 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 that people need the Lord. When we're only concerned about ourselves, there's no sense of sacrifice or service. Self-centeredness has doomed marriages, split churches, divided families, Brought countries and empires crashing down to ruin. And the opposite of this self-seeking spirit is a gracious spirit. A gracious spirit is seen in the person who will be content to listen to what other people have to say. Who will see the bigger picture and realize it goes way beyond me. I'm not the focal point. That gracious person will be in tune with people around them, and they'll notice the tear that many others don't even see. They'll even feel with them the grimace and the smile, and they'll respond accordingly. They'll be willing, that graceful person, to give up what is best for self for the benefit of someone else. And they don't look at others kind of analyzing them, measuring them, 
what can I get out of them? If I befriend them, what benefit is there for me in that friendship? They'll cherish them because of who they are rather than what they can get. Again, that preacher said Christianity in its purest form is not bent on human fulfillment. Its overriding purpose is simple and to the point. God's kingdom come. That's what we are considering in our prayer meeting at the moment in our series on Matthew chapter 6. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christians then, he continues, are those who roll up their sleeves to advance God's kingdom. They give themselves away in love so God and others might perceive. They make decisions not based on the basis of economic, social, or status factors, but with only one question in mind. Does this bring God's kingdom on earth closer to reality? But instead of trying to build up selflessly, selflessly God's kingdom here in Corinth, we have such extreme selfishness in Corinth, especially in the whole realm of the exercise of spiritual gifts. And so in 1 Corinthians 14 and 4, Paul reproaches them, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, what is he doing? Edifieth himself, edifieth himself. It's only for him but he that prophesieth, preacheth, edifieth the church. He puts in another note of caution, a few verses down, 1 Corinthians 14 and 12. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Not just building up yourself or edifying yourself. But these Corinthians, they had twisted the purpose of those spiritual gifts. And in trying to promote themselves, to build themselves up. They were misusing those gifts, and they were not trying to help and not trying to encourage others. That is not the activity of love. Fulton Eusler told the story of a uniformed chauffeur. He walked up to the desk of a clerk in a cemetery, and he said, the lady is too ill to walk, would you mind coming with me? And waiting in the car was a frail, elderly lady. And those sunken eyes of hers, they were telltale signs that she was carrying deep and enduring hurt. I'm Mrs. So-and-so, she said weakly. Every week for the last two years, I've been sending you a $5 bill in the mail. Oh, yes, the clerk remembered, for the flowers. Yes. To be laid on the grave of my loved one. I came today, she said, because the doctors have let me know that I've only a few weeks left. I'll not be sorry to go. There's nothing to live for anyway, so I wanted to drive for one last look at the grave. The clerk blinked, was rather embarrassed, smiled, and then he said, You know, ma'am, I'm very sorry you kept sending that money for the flowers. Sorry, she asked. Yes. The flowers last such a little time. Nobody ever sees them. Do you realize what you're saying, she asked? Oh, indeed I do. You see, I belong to a visiting society, and I go to state hospitals and insane asylums where people dearly love flowers, and they can see them, and they can smell them. Lady, there are living people 
in places like that. The woman sat in silence for a moment, and then, without a word, she just signaled to the chauffeur to drive away. Some months later, that same clerk was astonished to receive another visit, only this time he was doubly astonished, because the old woman was driving the car, and there was no chauffeur. I take the floors to the people in hospital myself, she said with a friendly smile. You were right. It does make them happy. And it makes me happy too. The doctors don't know what's making me well, but I do. I have somebody else to live for. She had discovered what most of us knew. But do we not too often forget? In helping others, she had actually helped herself. As Paul puts it in Galatians 6 and verse 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And what do we have there but a picture of the selflessness of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect example. And so in Matthew 20 and verse 28, he declares, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. And he proved that again and again. It wasn't mere talk. His actions proved that love. And in summing up this section of 1 Corinthians 13, MacArthur said, I believe that selflessness, selflessness, is the key to the whole concept of love described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. If you're patient with people, kind with people, not jealous of people, not angry with people, not upset with people, not easily provoked by people, very tolerant with people, very generous with people, very gracious with people, never rude to people, you're selfless. One of the greatest hindrances to true love Reaching out to a world that needs it is our preoccupation with the person in our mirror. Paul has given us the negatives here. Envy, boasting, pride, rudeness, self-centeredness. Our job is let's get at those things, pull out those weeds, and cultivate their counterparts. Contentment and enjoyment in life, a willingness to let other people shine, humility, courtesy, graciousness. How do we reach that destination? Well, I suggest in closing by deepening your relationship with God, start by thanking Him for His grace. It's not our goodness, but His grace that brought salvation to us, it brings every blessing our way. And before we complain, just press pause right there and turn around and thank God for His blessings. Deepen our relationship with Him. Don't take Him or His blessings for granted. Pray for those who carry burdens heavier than yours. Grow to trust His wisdom and His grace. Envy then will be replaced with gratitude and with compassion. Deepen your relationship with God. Deliberately work to put other people into the spotlight. Ask them questions about their experiences. Applaud their achievements. Genuinely take an interest in their lives. Put them in the spotlight. Cultivate honesty. And it was not just the politicians who spin the truth. We do it all the time. We try to make ourselves 
look better than we really are. Be honest about our mistakes. Don't exaggerate our successes. Report accurately when you're talking to somebody else what you said to the other person. Don't embellish. Oh, I said this when you didn't. That always causes problems. You'll be found out. Acknowledge when you come with a a great thought or a plan. Acknowledge the influence of others who planted the seed of that thought and plan in your mind. Cultivate honesty. Remind yourself also daily that your true impact in life will not be made from the stuff you own and will not be made by the titles that you wear. Your true impact will be found in the person you are, but only insofar as you are showing likeness to Jesus Christ. To be like Jesus. And the final thing, work hard to give God the glory for everything. Rather than grabbing the glory for yourself and pretending you've done what actually He alone has gifted. Now, this sounds easy, but it's not. And we all know that nothing of value ever comes easily. Let's stop admiring our own reflection in the pool. Look to Christ, and therefore to others, with the look of Calvary-inspired love.